Welcome to the Shave Nose Podcast with your host, Jabulu Sandawan. I'm thrilled to have the esteemed cybersecurity professional, Joseph Maguere-Guede, joining us as our guest today. In this episode, we delve into the world of cybersecurity, technology trends, and the dynamic landscape of the Zimbabwe and African tech ecosystem. Whether you're a cybersecurity enthusiast, a tech professional, or simply curious about the impact of technology on our lives, this episode will be a gateway to valuable insight, expert advice, and a thought-provoking discussion. Now, I give you Joseph Mongoregwede. Hi, Joseph. Uh, welcome to the Shape Notes podcast. Thanks, Chabulo. It's good to uh, finally get a chance to have this conversation. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. Thanks so much for uh, making the time. So, um, for those who don't know you, you spend uh, most of your days uh, battling hackers. Um, but what initially drew uh, a seemingly you know, normal person like yourself uh, to the dark side? Interesting framing of the question. So, yeah, I think um, as, an, as an intro, I think I would say I'm not really on the on the dark side of things. I think I'm one of the good guys who is actually helping to stop the bad guys. But as yeah. you would appreciate, to, to be able to do that, you actually need to have an understanding of what being a bad guy actually looks like and how the bad guys operate, know their modus operandi, and, and then build defenses from that. So... Yeah, it was really genuinely an interest in uh, technology, interest in security, and also the opportunities that it brings. I wouldn't want to sound like I, I didn't think of uh, the other side of, uh, of of the career. But yeah, I think those are those yeah. are the main things, really. Um, the fact that it's an industry that keeps growing, and if you look at the trajectory, it seems like it's only going to grow. Yeah. So um, I think you, you hinted on something. So something that we often hear about is this sort of a hacker mindset um, and, and how it can be harnessed for, for good. So as a cybersecurity expert, um, have, you, have you ever found yourself you know, thinking like a hacker, uh, maybe in order to anticipate and, and prevent attacks? Uh, can you share any maybe intriguing examples where, where you think uh, where thinking like a hacker has led to uh, to perhaps uh, innovative security measures? Yeah, so simply put, I think um, you you actually have to always think like a hacker. There is just there is just no way you can act like a, a normal person and expect to defend against um, hackers. So yeah. Giving real-world practical example, I think the whole concept of threat intelligence, which I would believe is the foundation of um, almost all security defense um, mechanisms, is actually based on behaving and tracking what threat actors are actually doing. So for for most of what we do in our day-to-day lives, um, obviously when I say I or we, I'll probably be referring to to myself and the teams that I work with because yeah. there is obviously a lot of uh, different responsibilities involved in security and each person will be playing their part. But yeah, so for for, for basic security defense, you, you really need to know what you are defending against. So you can't take a shield or those leather shields that we used to go back to war in the 1970, 1900s. Yeah. You can't take that to defend against someone who has got a 
uh, who is using ICBMs and things like that, right? Because it's just not going to, to be a, a reasonable warfare. So it's yeah. a similar kind of scenario in this setup where you really need to understand what the threat actors are doing, what their motivations are. So to get that information, you might actually at some point find yourself in, in the dark web to to hear what they're talking about, to know the exploits that, the exploits that they are trading and uh, to know the sort of... Um, vulnerabilities that they are targeting to exploit and then once you get that information you go back to your environment look at your environment and try to do a mapping of uh, common threat actors to vulnerabilities that you may have within your environment and then you prioritize remediation of those sort of vulnerabilities first so that will be more like leveraging threat intelligence which you got by acting like one of them and then using that to make sure that those common threat actors or the most the threat actors that you're most concerned about wouldn't really have um, an entry point into your organization or your network because you yeah. have targeted their modus operandi to make sure that uh, they won't have a way in so yeah that's that's simply put that's how you think like a like a hacker to to enhance security within your environment awesome so i i've i've also um i, I jump i sort of bumped into the stats that said uh 90% of you know um of of threats or attacks are unknown exploits um first of all i would want to hear your thoughts on this um uh, given your experience but um this made me think that perhaps you know the 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 other dimension then comes in where uh you know there's some sort of uh, uh i don't know, some sort of psychological um uh, attack also you know so the, the hacker might use a non exploit but then there's there's this other um psychological hack perhaps that is uh, perpetuated against the um the target or something like that. So uh, I'm interested in in uh, in hearing what you what you you make of that uh, particular state. So yeah, I think uh, the numbers obviously they would differ depending on the source. But yeah. most of the numbers, uh, if you read them uh, with with context and also considering who exactly is producing the numbers, they they can be explained. So if that eighty was reduced to seventy five, I would still be okay with it, or to ninety five or whatever. So the the crux of of the state really is saying most of what you get compromised on is not really the the new stuff because yeah. um most of the new new exploits sorry the new vulnerabilities and uh, they're called cves the new ones are a concern but they don't really affect um most of these really really small organizations uh, and when you think of the time that it takes from and a vulnerability being known, which is a CVE, to the time when the threat actors actually develop an exploit for that vulnerability. That yeah. time window is actually uh, quite substantial. And if you get to a point where you've got vulnerabilities that are just new and then they get exploited, it's probably a result of some advanced persistent threat, which are like government-sponsored organizations like Sholimas okay. and and other things. So for most of the average folk or the average business, they they over ninety percent definitely will be the known things that they they have known maybe for months or stuff like that. Right now, you would argue that there's still a lot of people having log four J vulnerabilities, which made noise like last year, late last year, November, December or something. 
and uh, people just don't keep up with their page management and there, there are certain other structural issues within um, vulnerability management practices that lead to those expo um, to those um, vulnerabilities remaining unremediated for extended periods of time so when you're a threat actor and if you think like a hacker there is just no reason trying to use one of the latest exploits when there is a uh, an MS-10 whatever, 10, MS-1017 whatever vulnerability that we used to play with back in 2017. You still have a lot of people with that vulnerability. And when you think like a hacker, you have to take the path of least resistance. There is no point in trying to do it the hard way when like the, the obvious stuff is there. So that's why I think um, it could actually be more than, than 95 for the average four. And maybe it could be less for those corporates that are most targeted or for that that hosts some really really um important personal data that hackers are generally interested in so yeah it's uh it's quite an interesting one but um yeah i would actually argue it could be even uh higher than 90 percent because a lot of the problems we have are from a long time ago and there are other things that that add into that complexity like for example people may not know the assets that they have so you yeah. could remediate and do all sorts of other good things but you don't know there's an old camera on your on your network um that is not okay. been patched for the past three years you may not know that one windows xp machine that has been sitting somewhere that is just printing receipts or doing something so if those things are on your network then there's just there's just no point in trying to like exploit the more complex vulnerability when there's a uh, the easy quick wins that could be targeted so yeah i think it does make sense so um from what you're saying uh, it seems to me that it's it's more of a problem that lies um with the with the target um that maybe they might still have like you're saying outdated um systems uh or in some cases not uh taking enough or exercising uh sufficient caution uh in protecting their their assets am i am i getting that right yeah, yeah, that's it. I think it's it's more the the victim side issue where when you get exploited with a vulnerability that that was identified in 2017, 2018, that's just on you. It's and I, hackers would need to go take, like I said, the path of least resistance. And if there are those old vulnerabilities with known, because like the the longer a vulnerability stays, the more exploits are available to target that. So once you have more exploits, then that the chances of them finding one that actually uh, successfully delivers the payload, then it means you're more likely to get compromised that way. So yeah, it's more a victim side issue than um, attacker being smart or anything like that. Okay, I see. So could you maybe share some um, some of the most important or significant projects that you have you have worked on uh, throughout your career? Oh man, a lot has happened in my life. Uh, I haven't been working for too long, actually. I haven't okay. been working for too long, but I've, uh, yeah, I think ten years is decent. Um, so most of the things that I've been working on, really, my life used, my life started in in assurance. So I was on the side where we're just assure, providing assurance over information system security posture. So okay. that would be in some cases vulnerability assessments and penetration testing as part of an external consulting organization. So for those, it's really just going to clients and uh, helping identify or assess vulnerabilities on their networks and environments, and then uh, try to 
exploit to the extent agreed in scope uh, and then deliver results and how they can remediate most of those issues. And then yeah. uh, we've had um, quite a few other um, cyber assurance specific engagements, which are more from a consultancy basis where we look at the operations from a controls perspective, how are they actually managing risk end to end? So we're talking of like integrated risk management where you have your governance, your controls, your frameworks, your assurance layers, your regulatory environments and things like that. So we had um, a few of those end to end assurance um, assurance reviews. Um, I've also been involved in one project which was just focused on board reporting. So it's it's trying to answer the question of how does the board know what's happening in security? Yeah. And uh, that that sounds um, simple, but yeah, it's a, it's quite a bit of a lot of work because when you think of security, there is so many domains, and you need to find the useful bits of information that you could actually share with the boards. One to help them make uh, business decisions, and also to help them uh, with the information that they need to steer the the overall direction of the enterprise, and forcing that on and creating that alignment between. Uh, cybersecurity strategy and uh, the business or the corporate strategy. So it was uh, trying to drive those uh, metrics um, and then uh, kind of dumbing them down for them to actually make sense to the board level without losing the technical detail of what actually makes those metrics up. So I think, yeah, those those are some of the quite interesting ones. They, they, they sound easier when you just talk of them like this, but then when you get to the ground and actually start building a board metric, you realize that there's a lot of moving parts and um, there are also data risk considerations. How do you get the data that you're using to build the metric and what are the processes and controls that are within that data lineage and, and things like that. So yeah, that one was quite quite interesting and um, it has a value that, that can be seen by the people who actually matter. So it's not all the time that you pre- prepare something that the board would say, yeah, this is good. So I think yeah, that was one uh, one of the most interesting ones that I worked on. Oh, that's quite interesting. So, um, so how did you maybe just to to take you back a little bit? What what sort of inspired yeah. you to to get into this uh, into this field, and and what 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 kind of drew you to um, to cybersecurity? Oh uh, yeah. So one, it's luck. Um, I try not to be one of those people who don't want to acknowledge the the function of the value or the contribution of luck in your yeah. life. I think for me it was luck, but then uh, you could also argue that for luck to happen, it's actually when preparation meets opportunity. Um, yeah. I think I did my part and luck happened. So back when I when I was uh, an intern, I actually intern did my internship uh, at KPMG back in Zimbabwe. There was uh, one guy who almost had all certifications that I knew of in technology. And uh, I go, he was more a big brother than anything, and he was really helpful. So just looking up to him, to me, I saw exactly what I wanted to do at that time. So with the advice and guidance that I got and the encouragement that I got, I, I just made my mind up when I was still back in college, obviously. and. Uh, I decided to start pursuing um, industry qualifications when I was still a student, and I actually passed my my CISA, uh, which is Certified Information Systems Audit, 
I actually yeah. passed in the top five percent. I was like, oh, this actually works. So I think that to me was a really good motivator because it 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 kind of confirmed to me or gave me assurance that uh, or reinforced the idea that I was actually able to do the things and uh, I would actually do it decently well. So obviously my interest increased, improved in the area. And then uh, after graduating from college, I just had to go back and start focusing on uh, on those things. Finding a job and everything else was fairly easy because I had um, an industry qualification to show for it. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's how I got into security. And um, obviously, I, I thought about the future opportunities and prospects within the area. And um, with a lot of people, so, you know, I don't know how much you know about the big four, uh, big four consultancy firms, but you would have a lot of people who leave Zimbabwe for many other countries. So for me, it was a really good avenue to say, okay, if things go down south, I, I can just at one point, uh, move over to another country and get the exposure in those areas. And some yeah. of the people that I used to work with when I was back in KPMG were now in different countries. And talking to them, I could tell that this is the way to go. So it further reinforced and uh, kept me motivated to keep to keep grinding. So yeah, that's how I got into security. Um, and a bit of luck, obviously, like I mentioned, it's just yeah. having the right people around you and getting the right advice at the right time. So yeah. Yeah, so speaking of advice, do you do you have um any specific people that you looked up to or, or mentors or people that influenced you um in your in your journey in cybersecurity? Um, I think there's quite a few people. A lot of people actually contributed to my life and uh, some of them um in small ways, some of them in really big ways. And I wouldn't want to like list names, but there are yeah. a few that I think would be really um, worth highlighting. The first guy that I mentioned, um, uh, he's, uh, if you look him up, is Christopher Monway. He's okay. uh, the KPMG guy. He was, uh, the guy was smart. And yeah. uh, looking up to him, him actually made sense. And he kind of, he kind of showed me, it was more a show and tell rather than give advice. So, you know, it's easier when a person who has done something that you're thinking about doing is telling you what you need to do and why. So it was really good explaining the why and then uh, just giving you a rough idea of the general direction and then just let you piece the, 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 the final product yourself so that it becomes your idea. You actually own it. And yeah, yeah that's what he did and um, came up with a plan and... Um, yeah, here I am. And then there's a guy. So most of what I was doing was really more consulting, which is like information systems, uh, audit and assurance. Then to move into cyber, there's a guy uh, from India that I worked with. His name is Sudashan, Sudashan Power. Uh, yeah, the guy uh, was really good. He was patient. You know, there are times where you think you know stuff, right? And then when yeah. you start doing like the technical stuff, you realize that, you know, I don't know a thing. So exactly. at, at that at that point, it gets really hard to ask stupid questions because you know, yeah. like this is probably a stupid question, and um, I may not need to ask it. If I ask it, I will look like I'm really dumb. But this guy was really good in that he he forced me to ask questions whenever I explained something, and uh, I had to ask something. So it was like for him forcing me to ask stupid questions. And the yep. way he answered them didn't feel like demeaning or looking. It didn't make me feel bad for asking the question. So that's how I really got into like the technical um, nitty-gritty details. And he also threw me in the deep end. You know, when you're just studying, you understand a few things, 
instead of letting you figure things out slowly, just throws you in the deep end. And uh, obviously, some of the things you need to find out, you get his help if he's available. So he's really the one who got me into the technical stuff. And I think the last person who uh, applied, I think, the the, the executive touch is uh, Andrew Barker. He was my manager here in New Zealand. And uh, yeah, the guy was, he mainly taught, taught me how to take things up a level and uh, dumb stuff down, think about the bigger picture and take a few steps back. And the, the other thing that he always commented on is uh, to be able to read the room. So those are some of the things, obviously, at a, at a career level. And depending on um, as the stakeholders that you interact with change, you need to start building some of those skill sets to be able to communicate with the people that are high above and uh, kind of communicate security or technology in, a, in, in business terms. Yeah. So yeah, those were I think those were the three main contributors. But obviously, there's a lot of people who got involved and contributed tiny bits um, every now and then. Awesome. So um, I want to talk about um, deep fakes. Right. So I've I've seen a couple of uh, deep fakes on the internet where you know uh, it's mm-hmm. either Donald Trump saying something outrageous or or some some sort of politician or, or, or influential person um who's uh said to have said something that they didn't say or, or some some of them are pretty obvious but some of them not not so much so mm-hmm. and they've they've become a, a growing concern um could you share some light on the potential risks and, and impl- implications of this of this deep fakes and how uh, both individuals and organizations can uh, protect themselves from this um, yeah, or maybe you could maybe also start by uh, defining what these are, uh, in case you know someone listening doesn't know what a what a deep fake is. Uh, d- deep fakes uh, is it's quite an interesting topic, and to be honest, it's one of the reasons why I'm I actually don't post too much on like social media and stuff because yeah. I'm one of those people concerned about um, about my image. So a deep fake is simply. Uh, a manipulated impression or impersonation of someone. It could be your voice or your face or your voice and face or any yeah. combination of features that represent you. And um, it's not really your identity being taken over, but it's just clearly meant to mislead. And I find I find them really quite concerning. And the, the concern is in two ways. The first side of it is that true information will be hard to believe if deep fakes are so prevalent. So they, they are getting to a point where it's really, really hard to distinguish. And as you yeah. say, some of them you can you can you can identify what exactly is going wrong. But if you look at most of those that you can identify, if you reduce the quality, if it's a video, if you reduce the quality to maybe 360p, it gets really, really hard to see those differences. It's easier when it's a yeah. 4K image, but then if you reduce the quality, it just gets noisy and hard to detect. So the one side is that true information, like if you actually say something, people may think that it's a deep fake. Yeah. And the other side is that people say you say things that you'd never say. And besides reputational damage, I remember during this Zimbabwean election cycle, I saw one deep fake of uh, the president 
um, saying something. I was like, okay, for me, it's too obvious, but I'm sure there's yeah. a few people who genuinely believed it. Who fell for it, and, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and for 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 those people, there is no, there are no, there there aren't many means to actually detect that this is a deep fake. So it question it it gets to a point where you start questioning what what exactly is identity because if someone can create a video of you saying something then do you still have your identity or your identity is now with someone else because at that point if people can start believing what someone said and say it's you then it means your identity is no longer really 100% yours which which brings some really philosophical dilemmas and you may start questioning the meaning of life and um, other things obviously you you think of um, fraudulent um, activities like scams um, impersonation yeah. if someone can just send you a video as 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 your aunt or someone who is in distress they could actually use that to manipulate you and you will easily send money if you see your aunt saying oh i've been kidnapped or whatever something of this sort has happened to me um, so the person can actually rip you off by just saying, oh, we've kidnapped this person who is actually maybe just seated home um, and you will fall for that. So there's a lot of um, really bad use cases. When you think of social engineering, most of the things that we use to detect social engineering are trying to validate the identity of the source of information. But if a person, I, I watched one deepfake of Barack Obama. They showed a deepfake and the real um, a real image, a real video of Obama saying the same things. There was just literally no difference. Like I couldn't pick a difference. Yeah. There was just no difference. So they are getting really, really good. So you think of what other use cases could be. For me, one of the biggest concerns that I have, um, I, I, I don't know if it's just me, but I don't like uh, crossing, crossing, crossing lines with the legal in the legal world. I don't like like being. I actually don't like being arrested or going to court for any reason. So when you think of things like um, legal issues, so does it mean that someone can just create a video of me saying or doing something and then I would actually have to prove that it wasn't me? And you wonder how, how, how evidence in court would actually stand because now the difference between what actually happened from a CCTV and what was created is now so hard to um to distinguish so it uh it, it is really going to be a tough time dealing with uh dealing with deep fakes and i think th- there are some cases where you can implement some measures obviously um firstly to protect yourself and then secondly to protect businesses or the people around you and one thing that I do as a, as a personal practice, I think I asked you uh, when, when I logged on to this uh, platform, I asked you if I really have to use my details. And uh, I just don't provide my details unless if I really, really have to. And that yeah. includes like sharing my p- pictures on social media because those deepfakes, they actually learn best on your images. So they will need like if I if, if they get... 100 images of yours showing faces at different angles then it gets easier to reproduce a video of you saying stuff because now they're using a data set that is um, more representative of you but then if they find three pictures then uh, that's where it it looks sketchy because it's now trying to adjust the angles and do some funny computations in the background to try and make it look like you so for me it's like yeah be mindful of what you share try to share as minimum information as possible so that it's harder for people to build a profile and 
the other thing is like using um for for things like scams and and stuff like that it's adopting some really um good security practice considering like things like multi-factor authentication for example so if a person validates themselves using a video or anything else you would need another factor so you can create an image of me but you won't know what i know which is a password you won't have what i have which is maybe a token or a phone which um sends the authentication requests from google authenticator or microsoft authenticator or you may not have the ip address coming from new zealand uh, if the yeah. system is validating your geolocation. So it's adding those additional layers of um, verification to to just try to make it harder, really, because I think now my my identity, like the, who I am, cannot be replicated. So I should try to add additional layers. If, thing, if we go to fingerprints, then you probably won't have my fingerprints. You might have a video of me saying something, but when we add those additional layers, I think, those um, those threads would start falling off, and uh, one other funny thing is uh, just maintaining uh, maintaining records. Uh, yeah. I try by all means to to show up in different like when I travel, for example, I try by all means to just be seen. If I see a camera, I show my face. You don't know when it will save you. It could be your alibi one day where when I land in Zimbabwe and then uh, a video a deepfake of me gets used for some reason. And for some reason, maybe that day I was actually still in Dubai. So I could be saved by a video camera, a CCTV camera in Dubai. That would yeah. be an alibi. So those are some of the things really. But in terms of like what you can actually do besides creating as many data points as you can, um, yeah, there the, 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 the won't be too much, uh, too much we can do except like adding, adding those small but uh, incremental enhancements to how we operate in our normal day-to-day life yeah and so obviously I, I, educating I, people about the risks yeah so i also kind of do the same thing i've uh, since deleted all my like i was telling a friend just the other day that i've since deleted all my um facebook pictures because i'm also um sort of um cautious about the same thing and it's also interesting that you mentioned um there's two examples of the deepfake that you saw of the president during the election and the Obama one. Because what, what seems to me uh, as, you know, a separating factor there is the content. In, in the first scenario, you might have detected that as a deepfake because of the content. You were like, okay, this is not something that this person would say. So yeah, it must yeah. be a fake. And then you maybe then uh, are able to detect other things that were wrong about that particular video. But in the Obama case, the content was the same, um, exactly. but you couldn't tell. So, yeah, so it, so I think it then becomes an issue of you. So, like you're saying, if it's something that's that person would say, you'd probably not be able to um, to tell the difference. And then the other thing is um, when we bring in the legal aspect uh, of it, right, so like you're saying, if someone was to use a, and then a couple of examples, right? Um, I know of um, I've heard about this lady who's um, they created some defect of her um, acting in a, in a very explicit scene, right? And and that caused a problem because you know, uh, imagine your employer knowing that you know you are on the front page of some magazine or some I mean newspaper because of of something like that. Or um, and like you're saying, there's this also one that I saw where 
um, uh, so it was in 60 minutes, but this person was just basically demonstrating how this works. They clone the person's voice, they call their office, and they ask um, yeah, I uh, for someone that to, yeah, for someone to send them a manual or whatever. So, exactly. so my question is like, what? How can governments be, um, you know, uh, be be ahead of this issue in terms of talking about the implications of this? Because this could have national uh, implication. Imagine someone making a deepfake of the president saying something that he didn't say that might have, you know, um, geopolitical or regional um, consequences. So what do you think governments are supposed to do in terms of um, actually getting ahead of some of these issues? So it's, it's, it's a tough territory, to be honest. And I think, um, I, I believe we're approaching a time where we we need to have technology to fight technology. Yeah. I think we we like the human eye or an unaided human will not be fit to to deal with the, the increments in or the advancements in technology. So I think at some point we need to have technology that actually detects technology. I know one of these guys, I can't remember the name, but uh, what it does is just basically debunk a lot of um theories on youtube videos or videos that he sees and what he does is he uses technology to detect that this video has been photoshopped this video is a deep fake for that reason so i think yeah. that could be a way for for any information that has got consequences or some implications it's trying to have technology fight technology otherwise it's, it won't help and for things like court systems for example it has to if something is going to have a consequence, then it has to be validated. Especially if the if the if the if, if the person being imitated contests, then I think there is good reason to 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 invest in those technologies that would help detect whether something is actually authentic. Because as much yeah. as uh, as smart as deepfakes would get, they will for 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 to to a good piece of technology, they, they, there is a really good chance that they will still be detected. But yeah. not for the human eye. So I think, but an investment in, in so, those things would help. Yeah. Yeah. So um, sorry to interject. I I was gonna say like, but uh, there's obviously like you mentioned like uh very great uh security risks. And and I and I would, I would it's easy to imagine a scenario where um you know a, a country doesn't need to have boots on the ground. For instance, they could just cause commotion uh, by simply employing. Yeah. Uh, uh, technology without even setting foot in the country right so i think yeah so like how do we how important is it for us to actually build our own technology um because for instance right um here in africa most of our phones uh come uh, are made by a company called um, transion so your your itels your what is a is probably they have a huge market share right so how important is it for us to build our own technology because to me that sounds like uh, some sort of risk, right? If 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 most of our phones are being, what if they have like back doors and stuff like that, and they can listen to conversations or collect data, whatever it is? How are we supposed to approach some of this, some of these issues? So the first thing is just accepting that the world as we know it has has changed. It's not going to stay the same, yeah. and. I think it's now in a matter of how much risk do you actually accept. If we adopt a, a framework or a mindset of saying, oh, I don't want risk, 
then you you may you may never get to use a phone um yeah so it's it's really trying to keep it practical we we need phones for sure and if if a samsung or an iphone is too expensive then you have to buy the the phone that is available and if yeah. it's got listeners and things like that, there are certain hygiene controls. Obviously, most of those phones would show you some services that are running, and there are multiple ways you can know what what's happening. But uh, if if there is a really persistent or persistent or advanced or person with authority who wants to track those things, it might get really hard to detect. But um, aside from the hygiene practices that you as a person can do, I think for for things like phone tapping and uh tracking and things like that i think it's it's just trying to be vigilant and knowing what you're installing for example um this application this uh application that you sent i tried to open on my mobile and it asked me to download an app i was like no i'm not going to do it on the web because i don't want to download an app just one yeah. more app so it's just trying to minimize the things that i have on my phone and have some level of control over what my phone actually does and checking permissions, for example, what application has access to my audio and can I stop it if I can, I, I just do. So yeah, and frankly speaking, the, the world is just getting really complex. And uh, part of it, part of me says some, sometimes we just need to accept and say, this is what we're living with. Um, it's a trade-off. Do you want technology with the risk of having all those things happening or do you want to live um, in some stone age environment where you were really safe no one could attack you and any person were to attack you had to actually walk up to you to to do that right now everything has changed like you mentioned um, you don't need to be in south africa to cause problems in south africa and to think of uh, what like the south african government can actually do if people in zimbabwe start causing problems um, online there is there is really not much because there are VPNs right now. I can VPN with my Surfshark and I'll be in South Africa. So yeah, there, there are just so many complexities, and um, some of it is just trying to strike a balance of practicality and um, extracting the use or the value that you need from from those products. Yeah. So with the US, I've seen like a bunch of those like Congress hearings, right? Where... I mean, some people yeah. argue that some of these members of Congress are not qualified to have those conversations, which is a yeah. valid one. But I think it's a step in the right direction to try and understand, you know, for instance, with TikTok, right? The, so speaking about, um, you know, a, a country maybe, you know, waging some psychological warfare against another country. So the claim is that, I don't know how true it is, that if you are on TikTok and you're in the U.S., and your geolocation is that then you your feed um suggests s- uh, specific content right the sort of content maybe some would describe as um uh, uh with the I'm potential of dumbing, dumbing down you know an entire generation uh-huh. or just yeah stuff that's not intellectually stimulating and then you have on the other hand um a very different feed when you're in china which is, you know, um, educational, intellectually stimulating, and that sort of thing. So I think I think maybe it, it would be a step in the right direction. Sort of look at how um, 
you know, another country can can use that technology. So I, I've been a huge advocate for us, like building our own technology. Not not necessarily, like you're saying, there, there needs to be a practicality to the approach, right? You can just throw everything away. Um, but I think just having those conversations and trying to, you know, and trying to get ahead of the issues is, is probably um, uh, a step in the right direction. Yeah. So, so, so from, from what I see, um, I, you did mention the, an interesting topic, the, the Congress, yeah. the U.S. Congress thing. You know, there's this guy who asked, like, uh, the TikTok uh, CEO, saying, "So you're saying your application has got access to Wi-Fi?" For him, it was a big concern. Like, yeah, it's an application; it has access to Wi-Fi. It has yeah. to have access to Wi-Fi. So, for for, for regulation, I think. I, I understand and like regulation, but I'm not really a big advocate for regulation. Yeah. The reason for me is um, the more you try to regulate things, like whose moral values are used to regulate? Because the moment you introduce a regulation, you are using someone else's basis of what is right. And for most yeah. of these things, there are not really clear or distinct things that are morally right and morally wrong. For example, who who decides that uh, sharing videos of bulldogs on skateboards is not as good as sharing a video of maybe brilliant.org explaining how yeah. the Pythagoras theorem works. So it's just, um, it's really a gray area to navigate. And one thing that I, that, w- w- things like TikTok, they've got an algorithm that is not dumb. The application is meant to, it's meant to maximize uh, engagement. Yeah. That's that's what they try to do. So if they send you stuff that you like and you like it, the algorithm knows that you're liking this stuff. So they just keep giving you that. I don't believe it's possible that they could just push that sort of stuff. But if you look at the stuff, the content creators, most of them are still in the U.S. So yeah. it's just people in U.S. sharing stuff that is useless to people in, in the U.S. And I think if you are to regulate that, then you might want to drive a behavior within the people, amongst the people, that actually generates an interest in useful stuff. So, yeah, I find it interesting. And um, building yeah, our own I, applications. Yeah, go ahead. So I, I also don't um, find it hard to imagine, uh, um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party messing with the U.S. in that particular manner. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's yeah. that's the, that's the other domain of war. Is it five or six domains of war? The social domain, and uh, I I truly believe it's one of the ways to to win it. If you if you make people um, naive and focus on the wrong things while you are focusing on um, a hypersonic plane or some other yeah. technological advancement, then you get an edge. So it's possible, definitely, but then. Whether regulation is the way to go there, is, is, I'm not uh, very sure. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, it has its no, own consequences, you. right? Yeah, but definitely, mm-hmm. yeah, where we can. I think if you introduce like the kind of carrot approach where there is an incentive for people, because there is this statement that says, "Show me the incentive, and I will show you the outcome." Yeah. So right now, the incentive. If you see the incentive, you can predict the outcome. People like to do unproductive stuff. The moment you change those TikTok videos into a brilliant.org lesson which teaches um, how rocket engines work, might not you be won't have as much engagement. Yeah, exactly. 
So yeah, it's show me the out, show, show me the incentive, and I'll show you the outcome. So I think maybe it might be um, a way to there might be need to to make those things look cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So it's it's quite interesting. Yeah. So you, were, I think you were saying something about um, the building our own technology bit. Yeah. So so bu- building our own technology, I think that there are certain domains that. I, I truly think that building our own technology will be the way to go. Yeah. If if you look at most of the markets, right, I, I, I'm in an in an environment that is some um, really cool too. I think New Zealand is a country that is right in the middle. Like it's a first world country. You have got like the great technologies, but it's still small enough to give you exposure and access to a lot of those things. Yeah. So when you think of um like from a security perspective, for example. There are, there are certain tools that are used in these environments. Um, I had a few conversations with Tendai, uh, the guy with Moguna Systems. Yeah. Um, we were discussing um, a fraud detection tool, and I told him about a tool called Fizai. Um That fraud detection tool is insane. In terms of capability, it's just insane. So when you think of that as the baseline or the benchmark of what fraud detection should look like, we don't have control, obviously, Zimbabwe is under sanctions and things like that, so they would never be selling it to, to Zimbabwe. Yeah. When you think of those capabilities, we need them in some way, shape, or form, and how best can we get them? If you try to get feeds, you are paying nothing less than $5 million. But yeah. then, if you look at the turnovers or the bottom line of most of our banks in Zimbabwe, not many would even have that um, that is the bottom line. So it yeah. means there has to be a local solution to a local problem. And that's yeah. why uh, we need more for our tools. And they also allow um, customization and relevance for our local local markets. Like, for example, in Zimbabwe, I, I, not to say I'm, I think Zimbabwe is, uh, is complex, but there is a lot of complexities. You might have a fourth currency or third currency or whatever currency introduced. And yeah. every two months, you have a statutory instrument uh, released that affects how your account most of those systems are not built to do that. And exactly. if you are an organization in Zimbabwe, you don't have significance to even drive that sort of change. You can't go to FIDSI and say, well, we're required to do this. There's an SI release. We need to comply by next week. So yeah. it's it's those cases that that make me think that we, we really need local solutions. Some way, in some way, shape, or form, we need local solutions. And we do have the benefit of the established um, players in the world right it's just copying seeing what feeds is doing and trying to implement yeah. it some some scale of that locally to give us yeah, some and, I, and i've seen that um um speaking about the chinese they it seems to me that they have like um they have their own version of you know almost all western apps right so they have yeah. their own version of zoom they've got their own version of um you know whatever payment payment platforms and so forth so yeah it's definitely i think yeah I, I think i think more so on you know beyond the um convenience um aspect i think it's just important for us to build our own technology like you said because yeah. it's it's um our our environment is quite different and so your your feeds eye like you're saying like they're not going to uh, specifically be at, uh, attentive to uh, a Zimbabwean uh, organizations concerned it's concerned uh, because first of all it's a small market and 
you know so you can't really you can't really do that so yeah, yeah. I, I think i support that point i think we need to and and the, the aspect of control is because you can't um oh, not that i'm too much on i'm i'm big on culture and things like that but yeah. um i think that there are some cultural values that that countries would prefer to to retain and maintain so if you have your own applications or own systems that you have some level of control then you can influence to an extent what gets propagated on those platforms and you don't really completely lose control of what people um or what the youth or the kids at, at different yeah. ages can get exposed to so i think that's really cool um i know like for example right now disney has got a lot of uh, changes in their broadcasting and things like that so if yeah. you are a country that is full control over those broadcasting um networks i'm sure i don't know if disney is broadcasted that much in china but i believe they, they, they will have certain control control over what gets seen by their people and uh i wouldn't want to call it propaganda but it is an element of propaganda um yeah but there are, there is, is a good word. in my view, it's a good, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, th- there are cases where it's really good propaganda, where you're saying, okay, yeah. we have got a set of values. We need to preserve this set of values. For that reason, we want, or we want to expose people of this age group to this type of content. So then if you have those policies, you can then implement. But then if they have TikTok and America says it's everything for everyone, then you lose control entirely. So yeah, yeah it just gets uh, muddy. I think China is one. I keep going back to China because they seem to have, uh, you know, mastered the game. They they understand that it's to your earlier point. I actually believe the opposite, which is to say that um, there are some philosophical, you know, and underpinnings to like the to the to the to the tools that we use, right? So if uh, if what we're using is built in Silicon Valley, people in Silicon Valley have got their own uh, worldview that might not necessarily be universal. So they're going yeah. to build, and it's, it's not a malicious thing, they're just going to build what they build with the values that they, that they espouse. Same thing with yeah. the Chinese, right? So, um, so yeah, I think, so, you know, I wanted to also speak about like the, the, the social media thing. I don't know if you are familiar with the Social Dilemma, um, the documentary. Um, mm, I think it I've... featured Tristan Harris and some ex um, social media execs, um, but they're basically talking about how um, these tools can be, you know, it, there's in some sense some of them are designed to actually uh, uh, get people addicted to them, you know, to drive engagement. And there's this, very, there's this line that jumped at me, which says that if if the product is free, then you are you, you are, are the, the product. product yeah. yeah. So, um, so in in a sense, I can see it's easy to see, you know, the sort of massive social experiment that is taking place at a global scale, where you are, you know, the social engineering is at a global scale. And again, this kind of ties in back to what you're saying that some maybe sometimes we need to also think about how we can uh, build our own solutions um, for the sake of our sovereignty and also just um uh, applying a context to some of these things and so when yeah. it comes to yeah you, you can jump in yeah so i, I think the, there are cases where because like there's network effects right once yeah. twitter is twitter i think the deal is gone if you yeah, really need exactly. a service like twitter you have to be on twitter 
Um, yeah, you, but I think you can you, there's also of, yeah. yeah there's also some flexibility that if you know that um, there are certain channels that are meant to drive a certain or to 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 kind of control the narrative and shape the public discourse, then I think knowledge sometimes actually helps. When I go on Twitter, I know what different people and different players are trying to do. So when I read content from any person, I I know that I don't follow too many people, obviously, but you try to just be an adult and consume what you think makes sense, not just to believe stuff. So I think there's also an additional layer. Yes, we have all those problems and stuff, but you as an adult, I think you also have a responsibility to to apply your own mind and and filter through those uh, through the content that you consume to determine what's actually useful to you, rather than just saying, "Well, the the channel, the, this platform gives me a lot of this content. I'll just consume." Because the funny yeah. thing, um, I, I also have a TikTok account, but if I show you the feed of my TikTok, it's Patrick Bed David. It's a lot of uh, business people that are just saying stuff. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, yeah. So so it's. It, it, it's it's really the the algorithm knows that that's the sort of stuff that I consume, so yeah. I think you also have a part in in part to play. But then it's really naive. It wouldn't be fair to expect a lot of people to actually think that way because most of the things that I just mentioned are not entertaining. Um, yeah. People won't be entertained by listening to Fusi, for example. But I would listen yeah. to him, and for me, that's 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 fun. That's things that that I do when I'm chilled. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's true that um, you you also have to play a part in terms of ot- optimizing uh, your own feed um, if you want to see um, the sort of product. So it's not like there's no uh, you know productive content out there, but also um, um, on the propaganda issue, like like you said, it's not it's not it's not a bad word, right? You could use propaganda simply you know uh, i suppose uh, exposing a, a particular uh, view right so you could also just um exercise that in in terms of trying to get uh, if it's a country to think a certain way um so it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a bad thing but it, it could be something as positive as we were speaking about uh building yeah. our own technology and stuff like that and speaking about that we we also have our you know, Africa is not. Um, we're also quite popular when it comes to um, you know cyber crime. So uh, you have the so-called Yahoo boys of 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 um, of Nigeria. Um, so you know, how do you think we can uh, work together to to sort of change this image um, and uh, to uh, to eliminate some of these some of these threats? Because I've also received some weird messages from a Gambian number or Nigerian number where someone <laughs> is pretending to be some kind of princess whose dad left the money, but now they need my money. And they to want to share the their money. money. <laughs> they want to share the money with me. But almost all the time, when I ask this person, the, the, the way that the one line that I use to dismiss this is, okay, fine, can we do a video call tonight? And almost all the time, they disappear. So, um, can you maybe share how we get, uh, perhaps, you know, uh, eliminate some of the threats or, and, and also how we can try and fight this to, to change our image. Because particularly with Nigeria, right? Nigeria is now synonymous with scammers, right? But um, 
so how do you what's your take on that and and how we can maybe uh change that it's it's an interesting topic and um a very complex to to break down i say that because there are people i think there are people who are doing it not because they want to do it i've watched this uh, documentary yeah. of a youtuber from the us he he got one guy who was trying to scam him and uh he actually deliberately failed for the scam and then afterwards he told the guy to say okay i know this was a scam now you tell me you have already gotten the few mo- the little money that you wanted now tell me why did you do it and then yeah. he started explaining his story and everything and the guy was saying okay fine what i would do i will buy you a camera and uh go and take pictures send me pictures and stuff like that i'll sell and do whatever whatever and then he got that guy to start doing stuff and obviously the first time was just a camera the guy did he was sending the pictures and everything and then he started sending a few more things to him and this guy actually started doing a lot of what what he was asked for so he was buying like socials and give donating and stuff like that so there are people who are just bad because they they want the easy way out but yeah. the, there's a lot of factors that are that are causing that. For me, I think the the most the, the biggest contributor are just economic factors. I think people are having it tough in yeah. most places um, in Africa. People are having it tough, and if someone knows that I could make a few phone calls and get two hundred bucks, I think if you have got to feed your your kids and your family, and that is an option on the table, a lot of people will be would be tempted to try. So a lot of the factors are really just high levels of poverty. And once you do that, I I I don't believe there is enough legal framework to to disincentivize or to at least deter people from doing those things. So yeah. if you com- commit those sort of crimes, I know like in India, uh call senders uh, we've got this YouTube, I don't know if you follow YouTubers like uh, Scammer Payback and Jim Browning. Yeah, they yeah. they expose those scams scam senders every now and then, but the police are just not interested in arresting them. So yeah. the legal framework, and even if they go and catch those people, I think the legal framework doesn't support proper proper persecution uh, of 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 such such cases. So the police are now like, oh, why would we do that if we're still not going to get? Uh, get it over the line and then you have yeah. things like corruption especially in india because like most of those um call sender bosses even in nigeria um they 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 would have some connections in the police and stuff so even if you report them they will not be arrested or anything because of those things so there's really an amalgamation of factors that lead people into into doing those things but uh, i i try to look at it from 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 a point of compassion yeah i, believe I think a that's a good number of them is is really they don't have options they are just pressed in a corner they have to do something yeah i think that's a, a sober take um because whenever we analyze issues we tend to always want to simplify things um that in in reality are, are much more complicated and like you said there's there's an aspect of corruption there's an aspect of poverty or desperation that plays into it um but yeah, but with even if all those things are true, there's also, you know, uh, it still doesn't make it a, a good thing to do. Um, yeah, but sure, like, there, there's no excuse, but yeah, there, there, no excuse for sure. 
Yeah, but definitely. I think you I think... can understand that. Well, yeah, you did yeah, bad, yeah. but um, you were pressed in a corner and you had to do something. Yeah, exactly. Because um, sometimes people just kind of also like you said, could he, people just make it seem as if it's one. Uh, it's just you know, uh, bad people doing bad things and it can't be stopped. Yeah, uh, you know, or whatever. But there are all these other factors that that go into it. And maybe I, I just shared one um that that I've experienced, like the guy asking for me to send them money so that they could get money. What what are other uh perhaps phishing um uh and and phishing scams or cyber attacks on individuals um that that we can look out for? Uh, okay, before before I even speak of phishing, there are those um you know the, the Nigerian prince. I I happen yeah. to know. Those guys are really good. I spoke first face to face with a lady who has sent over two thousand New Zealand dollars to a guy in Nigeria, like face to face. And this is yeah. a normal person, like a sober person, a normal person. And when I tell her that, have you seen the guy? She says no. I don't know how they. I think the guy invested so much time before he asked. He asked for money. So it's getting to a point where this whole thing is now scripted. And he's probably yeah. talking to is a guy is probably talking to ten, fifteen, twenty ladies, and he's taking his time, so he's not asking for money on the first day. He's probably asking for money after two months or something like that. Not even asking directly. So this is one person who I try to explain why that was an obvious scam, but right now she thinks I I have issues. So the guys are yeah. really getting advanced and. Um, yeah, it's it's quite sad. And like you mentioned, there's um obviously there's investment scams. Uh that's what affects most of the people in the in the first world countries. Because people have got idle money that that's just sitting somewhere in a bank, um, and earning very low interest. And then there's these uh, tons of investment scams. But I'm sure in Africa it's not really a prevalent thing because of the economic a, a recent case case of that. Um I think it's the e creator thing. E creator, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think so, some of it really capitalizes on most of those things. They capitalize on desperation, and yeah. and just a basic lack of awareness where people think you genuinely think that you could give someone a hundred bucks, and they give you back hundred and fifty bucks. Yeah, and you like have how done like where yeah. is the value created? So I think it's 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 a really lack of awareness and a basic lack of education, because if you understand the basics of money it doesn't come from nowhere so i can't yeah. just give you 100 bucks you give me 150 without taking it from someone else it, it it has to break at some point so one is just really a lack of awareness and i think that one is fully on the side of of the victim because yeah, yeah so, so it, how do we to... how do we how do we raise this sort of awareness uh in terms of helping people because a lot of people i've i've you know like you're saying i've I've also heard people that kind of you know get excited when they get a text from some of these numbers and um i actually bumped into one guy um at mukuru so apparently the tailors you know he was coming there quite often and they were actually asking why do you keep sending money to this you know to this country i don't know i don't uh-huh. remember which country. i think it was ghana or somewhere um, but he didn't, you know, he had some, uh, he didn't really give a clear answer. So I I suspected that he had fallen for, <laughs> for the scam and he was sending money. I, I don't know what that particular interaction was, but how do we actually, you know, 
raise this awareness and 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 teach people about uh, and make people aware of this of these scams. And like you said, some of them are so, can be a bit sophisticated. Yeah. So so I think that there are two levels at which um, it's solved, and I'm I'm obviously giving reference to the environment that I've seen the most things happen. Um, one is is a centralized approach where you've got a government agent, like for example those um, cyber emergency response teams, it's called SET. In most countries, in New Zealand, it's called SET NZ. So what yeah. they do is uh, they get intelligence for all kinds of phishing attempts, uh, spam, or smishing, or any any sort of thing that is trying to exploit um, exploit users be it a bank related so we've got all banks sending those everything that they receive to one central place so yeah. once those people receive it they they, they, they make it a nationwide kind of uh, communication to say okay. these are things that are happening so people get they, it kind of raises the level of awareness but then it's a different uh, conversation in Zimbabwe because here more than 80% of the people have good access to really fast internet but then in Zimbabwe you'd have maybe 30 or so percent having access to those things. So you need kind of yeah. a different solution to to solve it. So one is a centralized scale. I know South Africa and Kenya have got equivalents of set and they're actually doing stuff to try and and uh, stamp cyber uh, cyber risk and these sort of um, scams. And South Africa, I know that their regulatory framework is actually taking um, a more serious uh, stance against uh, those type of crime. Because yeah. I think the other thing is like, well, if I do this crime, I get caught. What happens? Nothing. So I might as well just do it. But then if yeah. there is a consequence, people will have to think twice. And the other yeah. the other layer, which I, I personally really believe in, and it aligns with one of the projects that I'm driving at my workplace right now, is to change the conversation of security from it being a security issue to it being a life issue. So yeah. the same way you talk about the weather, you need to get to a point where security becomes one of those things where yeah. but if you know yeah, if you learn something about security you should tell your sister your grandparents and anyone around you yeah i mean yeah i think Sorry, i think man. you're right because when we talk about like physical security um you know like you're saying it's a life issue we we think about it in those terms and now that yeah, it's, we live in a digital world, it it, it should also um, exactly yeah. It's, it's funny how people think of controls. If you give a person average Zimbabwean uh, five thousand US dollars, they would take a, they would have a safe, lock it in the safe. They don't tell people that I have five thousand in my house. They don't say yeah. stuff like they they keep the key secure. They hide everything. They don't make noise about it. They put all the controls. If they hear that their child forgot the window, left the window open, it will be an issue because they know there's something inside. But then if they have 5,000 in the bank, surely, you or 10,000 in the bank, you need to step up those controls. But then people yeah. somehow, because it's not physical, they, they don't really step it up. So the same way you enforce those security mindsets or behaviors, when you have 5,000 at home, you tell your kids to lock the gates. You tell your kids to make sure the camera is working if you've got CCTV cameras. You do yeah. all those security-related things to protect the environment. Those are the so same type of conversations you should be telling your kids. Say, don't leave the. Make sure you lock your screen when you leave your gadget. Make sure you don't install unnecessary applications. So it has to get to that point. Make sure you don't respond to text messages that whatever. 
So it's yeah. it's those sort of things that um, that people should start. And I think that's the only way if we can scale it down to personal interactions. They yeah. they they get they become an organic conversation. And uh, I know from my workplace, people don't ask certain things to security because they think oh, it's a dumb question. Why would I ask that to security? They'll probably ignore yeah. me. So we've tried to create what we call cyber champions within the, the environment. So our cyber yeah. champions are really people that we, we work with and we lead. And those are people that actually work within the business, but then they represent security. So over lunch, you can ask a cyber champion anything, even a stupid question, because they are not a technical person. They are, the, they are a person that you work with every day, but they've now got an additional sort of security insight. So we try to have those conversations uh, federate, to federate them to the lowest level possible. And we're also doing a few things with the schools in New Zealand, in primary school and things like that, and having kids uh, go to their parents and actually teach them basic security hygiene so it's one way of um trying to do that and um it's it's kind of helping because uh we've received quite some some good feedback from parents saying oh my child told me this and it's quite yeah. interesting to hear feedback like that yeah i think that's interesting i think my first lesson would be to tell people not to post their location because you know people post on whatsapp hey i'm away for i'm going to Kariba for yeah. a week or i'm going to this place for a week you are telling people that you're not going to be yeah, it's quite interesting what people, I, I don't think people think about the things that they do because yeah. now you, you have shown the location of where you actually are Yeah. and you post a status update with your entire family, that's your husband, your kids and everything. So now you've posted your location, you're not home and then later you post a status update in a boat or something. Yeah. And then a person passes through your home. So it's it's just those things that we do without really thinking. Yeah. That, and, and that I've, cause some of the issues. Yeah. And I've also heard of, you know, uh, in some documentaries that you watch that uh, where these criminals are actually talking about how some of this information is not so difficult to, to know. You could just check someone's status update or social media post and you know where they are, you know what they're going to be up to in the next hour. Yeah. Or, you know, they post some vital information that you can exploit. So maybe um, just going back to phishing, like what would be, are there any indicators that an email, text message, or a link might be a a, a, a phishing attempt? Or what should make you know, one is, suspicious? This is, uh, just today I was, um, so I, I run phishing simulations for organizations. So yeah. it's sending those things to like a seven, 6,000, people and uh you have to create that simulated fish and stuff like that and uh, one thing that i started doing is to not put any single obvious indicator of phishing yeah back then we used to say well if you see wrong spellings it's actually a characteristic so you'd say well there are wrong spellings there is uh statements that don't really add up there is links there is um email address shows whatever the name and and a lot of other things so those are still indicators but we are getting to a point where i'm actually getting more concerned about sharing that advice as an indicator of a phishing email because the human nature is if you tell me that a zebra has got stripes yeah and if i don't see stripes then it's not a zebra Exactly. 
which which is not always going to be the case because now you have used a characteristic to define an object. So yeah. if for some reason, like just saying, or oh, human beings or donkeys or dogs have got four legs, then now you are looking for four legs to define a dog. What if a dog, for some reason, it lost one leg? Does exactly. that make it not a dog? So it's a it's a tricky thing. I think. So the, the 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 usual indicators like agency, a sense of agency, uh, threatening language, requesting for personal information, and things like that, they are really good. They attach. They are really good to to identify like the most basic threats. But there are other things that that I think are more important, especially if you are expect if you are not expecting an email from that person. That yeah. to me is is a really um, important content so it's unusual obviously you check the domains but not everyone really thinks about checking the email domain because a lot of them could be spoofed and instead of putting the a that you know they put an a of a different character so it will still look like your domain so it's it's trying to see or it's it's recognizing whether you're actually expecting that um that email think about uh links and attachments just don't click links if you if Econet tells you to do something, then just go to the website that Econet is saying, and then do it from their website. Don't don't be lazy to to just <laughs> click links and uh, follow stuff that you you don't understand. So yeah, it's it's quite interesting. You can check obviously things like well, the 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 sources or the sites that I'm visiting are they proper websites are they like https do they have those securities in place is it actually the domain that i clicked because that's the other thing right you can um, have a link and then you edit the display text uh on the link people think oh yeah it's a link but it's saying the right place but then the link underneath that display text is actually a bogus site so yeah, yeah there's quite a few but i think i'll be wary of um pointing the specific ones i think there are general markers of like really dumb phishing emails i created today um i created some with uh, chat gpt I, I used it and engineered a really long prompt to have it generate some the stuff that it generated is just next level and um to just demonstrate that i i didn't do anything i took that same template and that's what i actually use for stuff to yeah. say okay like, if, 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 if yeah I mean, that's Sorry, another man. good point, right? That um, now, uh, maybe, yeah. So now also, like you're saying, if you just kind of look for the, you know, the obvious um, signs, you you could miss it because uh, now with ChatGPT and all these other things and all these other generative tools, um, um, scammers and, and, and these criminals can, can also get more sophisticated. So you'd also have to be you know, um, uh, more cautious and not yeah, just it actually, go it, for it the actually requires thing. It actually requires a lot more because um, the process of scamming has been made a lot easier. I don't know if you have used auto-GPTs. Um, I, I have used auto-GPTs. You just give it a, an end goal and it does the rest. So yeah. you can tell it to clone a certain website for a bank and then write a relevant or look for information that relates to the bank and the current events and the staff and everything. So yeah. it's just basically information gathering. So it knows like what that bank is doing because bank posts, right? They post stuff, they yeah. publish financial statements and everything. So it gathers all that information. It knows what's happening within the bank. 
and then uh, it generates an email, a phishing email that is relevant to the people that are that work at that bank. It creates a landing page uh, and a payload that is specific to that bank within a few minutes. So the process of 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 uh, phishing has been made really, really easy. So I think it really calls for vigilance. And yeah, you won't find like the easy things or like oh, there there was a website that didn't have a logo or something. No, yeah. they they will have a logo. And the time that it takes for people to detect it and and uh, put it down is actually going to be a long time because the time it takes for for creation is now very like in a few hours a site will be up. So it yeah. just needs to be alive for a few hours to 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 compromise a lot of people. So yeah, I think uh, it's 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 it has to go to the next level. If you are not sure, don't click links. Just yeah. don't. Yeah. Then what would be your advice, um, like on an uh, organizational uh, level? Um, what what are some of the uh, practices that organizations can put in place in order to have you know uh, a successful information security and uh, and risk management program? Let's say. So, an information security system is uh, when you think of. Uh, Information or security is a is a layered model, right? You have got defense in depth, where you have the external layers being the outermost. Most of in most cases, there will be like administrative things, policies and stuff like that. And then you go to the next level where you have your people, you have got the network, you have got operating system and stuff. So you really need to look at a, at a security program, not individual controls so when i say security program it's the the all-encompassing security ecosystem and a security system i think this statement has been said a hundred times or more a security system is only as strong as its weakest link so there is really no point in having those flashy flashy things when when the core is rotten if if your people lack the awareness you are just wasting time because they will just open the door. You are blocking and you are doing all those fancy things, putting detectors and everything, but people just open the door for the threat and the threat is in. So I think um, for from a security perspective, like a security awareness within the people would be one of the key things. It doesn't sound fancy. It's it's not like your male marshal or your, your extended um, uh, security detection and response system or those other fancy things it's the most basic and the most boring um tools but i I consider it to be one of the one of the biggest because no matter how advanced your tools are people can always uh cause you problems and uh yeah sorry go ahead no no you can go ahead yeah so i think once once you have your people and this this shouldn't be an event right like teaching or making sure your people are aware should not be yeah. an event where you you just do something and that's it. There's just no set and forget. It's a continuous thing because like threats keep changing. You need to have your people demonstrate or develop a culture of security. And for most organizations, what I see is security is considered to be a technology issue. And that's that is where most of the things actually start getting lost because if if a business unit leader doesn't have responsibilities for cyber then there is no incentive for them to 
to to build a culture of information security and yeah. then that function becomes the the weak link so um leading organizations from what i've seen in some places every business leader has got on their scorecard an an aspect of security within their function <clears throat> so if you have uh within your team let's say you have a team of 20 people and five people click links during a phishing simulation then it reflects bad on you as a leader it actually shows up on your scorecard because your function is pulling the is not pulling its weight so yeah. it's it's trying to to have um security as everyone's responsibility and uh eliminating a culture of blame i know this sound uh this sound like superficial but it's it's a really substantial issue where people I've seen cases where people make mistakes and they realize that I actually made a mistake. But because of the consequences, they choose not to because there's a chance that well I, I made the mistake. It may not be detected that I did it. So I it's better for me to just let it be than to say that I made the mistake. Yeah. So because of the consequences, people now are afraid of saying, Oh guys, I think I made a mistake. I misconfigured A, B, C, and we are having this problem. So building a culture of like a no-blame culture where you raise an issue. I think in aviation, that's one industry that I really like. In aviation, if, if a pilot fails to, to land and decides to do a go-around, for most companies, there is they don't have to explain why they did a go-around. Yeah. So it costs the company everything, but they don't have to explain why they did it. So that gives people the comfort to say, you know what? I can just go around and come back and land. It's not an issue. So yeah. it enhances the security. So if a person knows that I can make a mistake and I can communicate and still be fine, then it helps raise those um, those sort of issues. I, I know of practical examples where we had staff members send some really classified documents outside the organization. So there are there is a timeline where if you make such a mistake and you notify the right people at the right time, an email could actually just be pulled out of someone's mailbox yeah. and obviously it happens within a certain timeline so if a person feels like oh this is going to be scary and then they have to first go to the bathroom and think five times about it the time is just running out so yeah. we have had cases where people made those mistakes and uh, they communicated instantly say this is what i did i messed up and then uh, things got corrected so i think yeah. it's building that um culture of eliminating the blame culture and really try to, to focus on security. One last thing that I've that I've also seen is um, the problem of trying to run before you can walk. Yeah. We we've got a lot of fancy things, especially in security. You know, uh, I know a regulator who says one of the regulators from Australia, when they come they start a line with I don't want to see the shiny tools tell me what the tools do don't tell me about the tools because i really don't care in cyber yeah. people when they get the fancy colorful tools they want to show you the capability but uh, they forget the fundamentals so one one thing especially in security is um i don't know how much if you know there's this nist cyber security framework and it has got different um, domains which is identify protect detect respond and recover so you have capabilities to identify threats and identify your assets protect your assets you detect issues you respond to issues and you recover from from interruptions and stuff so for you to be able to uh, to identify uh, to protect your assets you need to be able to identify them we've got a lot of organizations like the example that i gave earlier where 
you've got these fancy tools, fancy programs and everything, but you don't know of the existence of some IP camera that has been on the network for seven years. It never gets updated. It's just an IP camera. It works. But it's on the on the corporate network. It's plugged on the corporate network. If you don't know of the existence of that asset and the, some Windows server that, that has been running, that is be, that is used by the HR lady and no one else talks about it, you can't protect it. If you if you don't identify it, you can't protect it. But now identification of assets is not fancy. Like it doesn't sound fancy because yeah. it's 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 not fancy, right? Oh, I know all the assets, I know where the, all the IPs the cameras are. It's not fancy. The fancy thing is we've applied this sort of anti malware we've applied this endpoint detection tool, we've applied this user behavior analytics and stuff like that. But the challenge is those things are now working on 76% of your assets, or let's put it to 95 for argument's sake. So you are now putting all those cool things on 95% of assets. And a lot of people will, will tell you that 95 is really good coverage. Yeah. So they've invested a lot of time in doing the running. Now you can run, you can protect the assets, but the walking is just knowing where your stuff is, what your stuff actually is. So yeah. the 5% that you don't know, remember when a, when a threat actor comes to your environment, they are not looking to compromise the hardest asset. They are yeah. looking for the path of least resistance. So the 5% will scream, I'm here. So they will target those. And uh, we have actually um, seen cases where they know what to target. So if you scan an environment, you know the assets that people normally ignore, your IP printers, for example. They yeah. know like an IP printer is probably not patched. It's probably very vulnerable. You can't get onto the network through it. People save a lot of credentials on those things. You go to IP um, IP cameras. You go to those TVs or the uh, surface, uh, it's called the surface hubs, like the TVs and stuff like that. It's not really a computer, but it's on the network. Yeah. So people are people know that those those things are to be to be those are actually prime targets. So instead of focusing on putting like the crazy detective uh, capabilities and responsive capabilities, just try to make sure you know what you need to protect, and then yeah. you build from there. So yes. I'll say so those are some of the things. That completeness of coverage is really key yeah. from a cybersecurity perspective. Yeah. Yeah, so speaking of um, shiny uh, tools and fancy tools, you know, when whenever you see these uh, uh, tech movies, right, there's always it always mm -hmm. appears that everything is shiny and and uh, they are these cool tools. But like you're saying, it's not it's not always about those. Um, but um, what what maybe can you share maybe the tools that you personally use that um, that 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 aid in your in your work? And and maybe uh, and also just maybe share your thoughts on the um, African uh, cybersecurity landscape and, and what you think um, what you think is going on there. So yeah, this this is an area that I find really interesting. And uh, just to manage expectations, um, I've been in st I've been stuck in New Zealand for just over five years now, and uh, yeah. Cybersecurity evolves really, really fast, and I won't be able to give enough context for Africa. But what I can say is I know the capabilities that exist. I know the minimum capabilities that 
an enterprise needs to have. And in terms of tools, there is so when you think of tools, there there are tools that help you to identify assets. Yeah. There is a tool called Amis. Amis. It's called a Amis A A R M I S. That as, that 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 thing is is different. It is different. It has some it has some capabilities that even if you're a security person you still wonder how it does certain things like yeah. for example you can you can identify anything that is plugged onto a network for as long as you've got a span on that network so if you put an army span within a certain subnet then it can access everything that communicates on that network so if you've got a network that has got like five ten different segments or subnets and you've got army spans on those different networks then you can be pretty confident that you know what you have on the network yeah that would be a starting point and uh when you move to protecting the assets that 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 is a that's where most of the tools will come into play one of it is um i don't know how much you know about CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike falcon um i i think it's by far the best in terms of um, endpoint protection so it's endpoint protection detection and response and they provide what they call extended detection response capabilities so crossstrike is um it has a lot of cloud cloud based platforms um and intelligence so they will tell you what's happening they they sense your environment for threats and if you've got a vulnerability or a threat that has been active starting yesterday they would give you that information and it just goes to a, to, to, to a level that they are really cool. I think I understand why people in security want to showcase those tools because they are really shiny and they are good at yeah. what they do. And uh, yeah, you've got your qualities, your vulnerability assessment and uh, patch management stuff. So there's qualities. I know in other industries, there's like NASAs and other things, but I think qualities, qualities has, has taken the trophy and ran away with it. Yeah. Um and uh yeah you have got um things like exabeam so that's user behavior user and entity behavior analytics exabeam it's um uh, it basically looks at a at a device and says this device doesn't normally behave like this so i'm raising a risk score or this mm-hmm. user doesn't normally behave like this like for example you will have the ability to run command line and execute things on a on a work laptop but if you never use command line and one day you just start using command line for too long, then it gets concerned. It raises your risk score. And then if you risk, if you reach a certain threshold, then uh, it flags the, the detection and response side of things. So that's that's another fancy capability that, that helps. And all those tools will also be feeding into one um, tool that is uh, your... How do, how do I don't want to say SIM. But uh, there's the um, security in- event, security information and event management tools. There's a lot of those. Um, there's one called um, EXO, which is um, a platform meant to to orchestrate. It's called security automation, security orchestration, automation and response. EXO. Mm-hmm. So what it does is it tries to automate response to security incidents in some cases so it gets feeds from all those other systems that you're getting your anti-malware your your endpoint detection your windows defender your office 365 from the cloud your azure ad which is now called entra for some reason so it gets information from all those log sources and kind of aggregates it and sees whether there are any risks 
related issues and then it raises incidents it does investigation in most cases and it only alerts users where it thinks that this requires a user's attention so that actually yeah. helps reduce the, the the intervention that is required from a person so to me i think there's a lot of other tools obviously you can't even uh, list them all but i think those are key capabilities that uh, that you need to have and it makes it practical to, to do things in security because you can't review logs. I know in Zimbabwe, you still have people that are like, oh, review file logs and everything, which sounds reasonable, but yeah, considering the volumes and stuff, it's, it just gets to a point where it's a, it's a checkbox exercise and a person is just saying, I reviewed these logs, done. But you yeah. can't really keep up. So yeah, I think for, for the markets like Zimbabwe, and it's something that I've also discussed with uh, Tendai, like I mentioned, there are some capabilities that you don't really need to to bring them to a scale that these juggernauts are doing because these are like 12, 15 million products. But just looking at what they are doing and trying to achieve a similar effect within the context of Zimbabwe. So you don't need to have uh, a crazy AI that analyzes logs from 100 different sources, but you could have something that aggregates and consolidates what is available within that environment and maybe yeah. just reduces the amount of human effort. So I think, yeah, for, for Africa, definitely um, there are some players who, who can afford those tools, but uh, I don't think there are many. Uh, for a market okay. like Zimbabwe, there, there will be very few, but the, the key will be to have players. And this is a, this is a tricky thing because I, I know in Zimbabwe, most software developers, for example, once a person is a developer, they are good enough. They just go to South Africa. They go to the UK and everywhere. But if we could at some point sustain talent locally and have some real incentive for people to actually do stuff. Because these products that I'm talking about, they are not made by any other people. It's still these same people who are living Zimbabwe, are living Zimbabwe, living Malaysia. They meet in the US. They create a product. So yeah. in terms of capability, we actually have the talent and everything, but everyone is living. So yeah, it's it's trying to to just have that support for for these small players, and once we start, I think once we start and we expand to other regions, I think it will be a good thing for us. Um, yeah, starting maybe, is always the hard part. Yeah, yeah, maybe you can just briefly um um articulate like how we can actually nurture and support that talent because I have also. Um, worked with uh, a colleague of mine who's in the UK to try and uh, try and actually uh, upskill talent here locally and also just share opportunities um, with them that they can uh, exploit in order to to um, to in order to up their game. But also, like you're saying, there's always a challenge where once that uh once that person uh, you know attains a level a certain level of skill they would want to go where that particular skill is appreciated or where they can even grow some more how how, how would you suggest we go around that problem and try to incentivize people to build locally and uh because um actually recently um uh, not recently, but a couple of weeks ago, did an article around you know how corporates can engage with startups. Um, I also feel maybe I should also <laughs> do something around how we are they're supposed to engage with talent, because a lot of the times you have 
uh, data scientists, friends of mine who are data scientists or who have, uh, who can do pretty amazing stuff. But once they get into an organization, yes, maybe they're getting paid, but it's not the environment that nurtures that kind of talent. You know, they they don't get to work on the sort of projects that they would want to work on. Like, how would you advise uh, both, let's say, uh, corporates and uh, perhaps the government in terms of approaching this issue of of, uh, of talent, particularly tech talent? It's a, it's an interesting question, and I think answering it will also require touching on topics that not many people like obviously but i think it's it's i'm one of those people who ran away who literally yeah. just decided that you know what i i think i'm better off um doing this elsewhere but the yeah. the reality is we, we need i i truly believe like this is not just me saying stuff i truly believe that if people if zimbabweans if you go to like diaspora you say every zimbabwean has to go back to their country I truly believe Zimbabwe will change because anything, they can come up with anything. I'm, sh- I'm sure of that because I've yeah. seen a lot of people that are really good at what they do, but the challenge is, yeah, like you mentioned, our economy is, is, is probably the biggest problem. And in two ways, one, it doesn't support people from staying. Like if you stay in Zimbabwe, one, obviously it's not, it's not advanced enough because the economy is not good enough. So you don't get yeah. the exposure that you need. Like, for example, right right now, for me to say I come back to Zimbabwe and I, I go to work in security in Zimbabwe, it's it's not going to fly. Because, so yeah. I've been working with uh, CrowdStrike, with uh, FeedZai from Fraud Detection. I've been working with EXO, from, with ExaBeam. And then I go to Zimbabwe, I'm told that these guys are reviewing fire logs manually, uh, fire logs manually. I'm like, no. That, that just won't yeah. fly. So it's it's that yeah. in terms of like the, just the, the 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 maturity, and I think there is enough appetite to to build amongst like the small players. The yeah. challenge we have is the venture capitalists basically have no confidence yeah. with Zimbabwe as a country. I've seen a lot of people pitching really good ideas, and an idea that gets pitched by a person from Kenya gets funding, but a better idea that you can see, like this is clearly a better idea pitched by a person yeah. in Zimbabwe just gets discounted. So you, yeah. investors just don't have enough faith in Zimbabwe. And I think it's on us as Zimbabweans to just try whatever we need to do to, to, to improve the, 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 the perception of the country from, yeah. uh, from the eye from the eyes of the of the investors and also making making the processes easier we've been trying to apply for for one license in one of the things that i'm doing on the side the the process is so painful like it it feels like it's deliberately complex they made it deliberately complex so that people (laughs) don't apply i I give an example I, i registered i registered a company here in new zealand yeah I never like i started and finished the process in one sitting on my desk and it wasn't yeah. like, oh, yeah, we've done this, whatever. No, seated on my desk, 40 minutes, I'm done. Company registered. I have confirmation in my email, my details. I did my payments and everything without sitting up. But in Zimbabwe, the process is like, oh, go do these documents and stuff like that. Like, oh, come on. We need to, yeah. we need to make, make it easier to, to actually um, do business in Zimbabwe, be it from a regulatory perspective, 
or from just basic cooperation or like interactions between business to business. And in terms yeah. of talent, um, I was actually excited to see, um, was it some government ministry saying they, they, they resumed hiring student interns? Um, I think students on attachment or stuff like that. It's, it's those simple things that, that really introduce people to, to the industry as early as possible, get them yeah. excited about something. And maybe they could actually think about staying. Because exactly. I don't want to lie to you. There's um, for, for, for a decision to make sense to leave Zimbabwe, the difference has to be massive. I can assure you, you won't find people um, people leave Zimbabwe for, for something that is like less than three times of what they are getting in Zimbabwe. People really yeah. live for like a 100% increment. Because practically speaking, you are leaving home. You are going to a place where you won't have friends in the early days. You just have so many problems. It's a different environment, different times. And right now, it's I'm like 12, 11 hours ahead of people yeah. that I talk to. So it's it's not a good environment. So for for just it doesn't have to match other countries. But I believe if Zimbabwe can do 50% of what others are doing, it will retain a lot of people because people will stay because they are home. So, yeah, I think it's some of the things that, that could be improved. And uh, just having a genuine appetite for seeing uh, small players actually actually taking part or participating in the, in the economy, you could kind of incentivize, incentivize them, be it uh, tax exemptions or tax credit or things that just, or maybe give an incentive for people who is employing a lot of graduates. And some things that just incentivizes um, yeah. Uh, retention of talent and engagement in, in, in fields of security. I think that would be a good way to go. Yeah, so I, like you're saying, I think um, one of the challenges that I've also seen, uh, it's interesting the, that the conversation is not balanced. So you'd hear corporate saying, well, you know, um, the quality of people that we're getting here is, is, quite, um, is quite bad and so forth. But I think that the problem is, you know, like you're saying, like you said earlier, this sort of blame game culture doesn't really help. I think um, we need to always look at the, you know, we need to have the discussion uh, uh, to make the discussion more balanced. Because, for instance, like you're saying, venture capital might not be attracted to to this sort of environment. But I believe that if our own companies uh, start working with startups in a more um yeah in a more fruitful way then maybe the tide would change because at the end of the day uh, <laughs> we are supposed to be able to chart our own path so if our own companies uh do not find value in investing in startups you know because you know you don't really have, have those stories I, I can't even think of one where no. like a, a, I can... a startup yeah yeah <laughs> i can give you a recent example i won't mention names but uh, we recently had uh, one small player in the market doing really well and one giant in the market. Instead of working with this small player, they are literally trying to just consume it whole, like the whole thing. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's those predatory instincts that just means, because once everything is big, then you won't have those. I, I believe you need those small players because they can get, they, I think they, they are probably more optimized for efficiency than these juggernauts in terms of like yeah. delivery. So you have yeah. that, that um, predator, predatory instinct that just kicks in and they want to consume everything. And uh, like you mentioned, in terms of talent, 
people would say, well, the, the graduates from Zimbabwean universities are not fit for purpose or whatever, whatever, which in some sense, it kind of makes sense because right now I, I got a picture from my little sister who is studying at the UZ. They were in a lecture using their phones, like there's no electricity. They're using their phones to light up. It's a dark room. You're like, okay, you really expect, like what quality of education do you expect to come from this sort of learning environment? There are challenges that are there, but the counter side of that argument is, well, we still have a lot of people that are going to Apple, that are going to Expedia in the UK. They are coming from those same institutions. So we can't really fault it on the education system. Yes, there is opportunities for the system to improve, but evidence seems to suggest that people are just living. And yeah. I don't believe I, I don't believe education gets people ready for 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 work. So, I think education yeah. is is proof that a person can endure and they can do their chores reasonably on time and they showed up at a certain place for four years consistently. I think those yeah. are good traits and markers and if and they know the basics like they've got the basic knowledge of stuff and then you train a person to do to actually do the things that give value yeah so yeah so, um yeah i think um i i i, I, I sometimes i think I, I fall somewhere in the middle of that conversation because you know on one hand you have corporates complaining that they have got bad graduates and then on the other hand you have people saying no you know we have uh um you know our people are going to work you know in top companies outside the country I think the corporates might have, you know, um, they might have a point. But my my argument is, well, you know, we shouldn't treat this as this is our problem, right? It's not. This shouldn't be like, you know, we shouldn't point fingers and say, oh, it's the universities, or it's the corporations, or it's this and that, because yeah. at the end of the day, all right, as corporations, you want to have a certain grade of um of uh, employees like what are you doing how are you working with these in, uh, universities to create yeah. programs that, exactly. you know, to assimilate exactly. people into so, organizations so. yeah and to make sure so, that the breed of uh, so if it's tech talent like how are you investing in the in the local tech ecosystem to make sure that you retain or you build the sort of talent so instead of just looking at a problem and and staring at it and pointing fingers uh you could actually be more proactive in terms of creating the sort of environment that you want. So I think I think yeah. this blame game culture um, is, is very uh, problematic. Yeah, and it's a, it's a it's a kind of siloed approach to things, right? It's the us versus them, so it's yeah. their responsibility, and no one is really bothering to complete the feedback loop. Um, there are certain courses that are still being studied in university that I genuinely believe that things are getting redundant. Yeah, I don't think you people should still be taught those things, but the exactly. education system for some reason is not is not changing. Um, but the industry is not saying, guys, why are you teaching these things? Because like all of this is now automated. It's not really going to help a person teach them the things that they actually need to know. Yeah. So it's it's also part of on the on the. It's partly on the corporates for not completing the feedback loop, and the institutions for not for not keeping up with the changes in in technology. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's both ways. So um maybe as a as a parting word, could you maybe give advice to someone who's coming up and who wants to uh, pursue a career in in, in cybersecurity? And that's. Simply put, I would say, develop a culture of doing. 
Yeah. Like actually just do stuff. Um it it sounds it sounds kind of blunt, but a lot of people are procrastinators by nature. I, I think we just don't like doing stuff. We like planning to say, well, I will um I will start studying for this thing maybe next month or whatever, but there's really nothing that will change between now and next month. So yeah. the field of cybersecurity, you you need to be able to do stuff, like be a doer and have an interest in things and just the natural curiosity of wanting to understand why things are the way they are. And one thing that I found um, that may not really sound like important, it's building your self-belief. Confidence comes from self-belief and self-belief comes from some form of evidence of where you once did something. So yeah. for me, I think I can point it back to when I passed my, my CISA back when I was still in college um, in the top 5%. To me, it was a really big deal to say, okay, I am actually in the top 5%, so I can do this. So it, if you're not careful, it becomes arrogance, but if you use it properly, it gives you the confidence to say, I actually belong. So it's yeah. going for those low-hanging fruits. I, I'm i an advocate for getting experience, like from actually doing stuff, which means if you're not getting paid, volunteer. Talk to people yeah. in the industry. If you hear of an event where they are hosting, they are doing something, just go and volunteer. Network with people. You don't need to be paid. It's your $1 combi there and back. Just show up in places where where people, like-minded people are and let them see you. So it's having one, have the network of people who are actually in cybersecurity so that the conversations become natural. They don't sound alien when, when yeah. people speak. And uh, having a low-hanging certification, like a cloud certification, it's called a cloud body of knowledge, something from ISACA. It's a very simple entry-level certification into cloud-related or cybersecurity-related aspects. And IEC2 is also offering, I think for the first 1 million people, IEC squared um, is now offering a certification, an entry-level cloud kind of uh, cyber certification. If you do that and you pass it, you start feeling like you are a cyber person. Yeah. Forget about the complex stuff. Forget about when people start discussing details that are too deep for you to understand. That that starting point is what you need to say. I now feel like I'm a cyber person. Now I can have the conversation, and and then you get the opportunity to learn. So yeah, it's 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 doing things. I think there's a there's a there's this aviation guy, a, a YouTuber who I follow. He says uh, confirmation bias is a bad thing, um, especially in aviation. If a pilot sees an area and thinks it's a, it's an airport, they would actually confirm with the markers that they see for, for them to just confirm that is what they think it is. It's bad in that sense, but you, our human brain, yeah. uh, our brains are not that smart. You can actually use it to your advantage. So if you can tell yourself that you are now a security person and you convince yourself that you're actually a security person and then you get a certification, you actually pass, then you actually become a security person. And the good thing about security is that Every person you see in security is always learning. Everyone. So it's just what are you learning those days? That's the difference. But each one, I can assure you, each person you see in security is learning. They, they are always learning something. So the only difference is what are you learning? Maybe you are learning more basic stuff, but you're all learning. 
So yeah, I think a starting point is build your own confidence. Use the confirmation bias to your advantage and uh, network, interact with the right people in your field. Seek opportunities, yeah. um, especially in Zimbabwe. You may not get a job, but find a way. If you're volunteering, that's it. Seek opportunities to get that to get that exposure, and that will be one way into cyber yeah, security may, field. Maybe, maybe lastly, can you also like talk to um, you know your business executives or people that have um, 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 roles in cyber security and in various organizations in terms of how they can you know create this, cultivate this culture, um and and just uh around uh around security and also just uh, in terms of how they can up their game uh when it comes to uh being prepared for threats and and also just maybe building tools that could help them um uh, on an organizational level in, in terms of uh fighting against uh cyber threats Okay, so so um, let me confirm before I respond. So you are asking what I would recommend if, let's say, you are a CISO for an organization. How yeah. what things that you need to do, things that you need to consider to to step your step up yeah, the game. Exactly. I think. Oh, there's quite a few things. I'm trying to prioritize them really quickly in my head. Yeah. I think trying to ensure that security is a business risk and communicating security in business language yeah. is is probably the highest level kind of advice that you that you can share because you know what what you what, what you see is that people in security like the size of they know stuff. They most for, to be in that position, you already know what what you need to do. You know these frameworks. You know these these tools. They know all these things. But then yeah. the challenge is, if you're in Zimbabwe, what are the challenges? Do you get the budget? There is a tool that is costing seven million. There's tool that is costing maybe three hundred thousand if it's in Zimbabwe. You know those things exist. You know already. But then will you actually get the budget? So it it becomes an issue of like, can you actually translate the the business risk or articulate cyber security risk in business terms so that the people that are making the decisions, people that are approving the budget would actually see the impact. So it's really a matter of dumbing it down, breaking it down to the most, to the simplest business terms. And it's it's, it's just like when you're talking to a child, right? Know what matters to them. And then you, you attach whatever you want them to do right on that thing that matters to them because you can't go to a kid and say oh, okay i you have got three thousand dollars in your child account i will take it out if it's a three-year-old they don't really care they don't know about that but if there's a toy that they're interested in if you tell them that i will take this away then maybe that's what they care about so it's really trying to have security conversations in business terms yeah. dumbing it down to a point where they understand and trying to to have that communication like the example that i gave having real tangible metrics and uh when you talk of metrics it's balanced right leading and lagging metrics so leading metrics i tell you the risk Le- lagging metrics is like what actually happened so or after the risk is manifested so it's saying okay if we keep tracking this way 
this is what will likely happen. And if this happens, this is the business impact that will that will face. So it's having those those um, those conversations in a in a fairly simple and business business uh business sense. The other things is also really trying to keep up, and some people may not be that interested. If it's not really naturally something that you gravitate towards, you may not be interested. But really trying to keep up to keep up with the regional or international developments in security, like um, I, I'm in in Australia, Australia Asia region, so I keep up with what happens like within the region. You've got yeah. some breaches that recently happened. And there are high-profile incidents that you need to be aware of, know what's happening out there, so that you anticipate what could actually happen to you, and you learn from those things before they happen to you. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really staying up to date, and obviously subscribing to some of the channels. I think every security person is probably subscribed to the cyber hub, cyber security hub, and things like that. So it's just like trying to stay current, and um, yeah, that's what I would say. That was a lot. Awesome. Yeah? Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Joseph, for coming on. Uh, I think you've really imparted a lot of uh, knowledge, and um, I hope uh, some people will, will learn a lot from from what you had to say today. Thank you so much. No, thanks, Jabulu. Otherwise, uh, yeah, the, it was really good to to have a conversation. Actually, there's a lot of stuff that I hadn't spoken about in ages, and. Uh, some yeah. of it just comes back to mind when you speak about it. But yeah, I find these really conversations really interesting and they, they, they will play a part. Um they will play a part in, in 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 changing the the landscape, especially in our in our markets. And yeah. I've also been seeing the work that you've been doing. Keep the keep the good work up. Thank um, you so much. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's quite interesting. Thanks, man.